HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insight with your host, Katie Kiefer. That would be me, folks. And we are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's. This is the Heritage Radio Network. My guest today on the phone is the distinguished journalist Ted Conover. He is the author of five books, most recently The Roots of Man about roads and New Jack guarding Sing Sing, an account of his 10 months spent working as a corrections officer at New York's Sing Sing prison. I I actually came across that article in The New Yorker before Ted turned it into a book, so I kind of knew who he was. I was excited to read his piece in Harper's, which is what we're talking about today. New Jack won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2001, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His other books are Whiteout, Lost in Ask. Coyotes, A Journey Across Borders with America's Illegal Immigrants, and Rolling Nowhere, Riding the Rails with America's Hobos. In recent years, he has taught at the Breadloaf Writers Conference, Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and the University of Oregon, also at the New York University, which, by the way, Ted, isn't on your bio. Um, he contributes to publications including the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, National Geographic, Virginia Quarterly Review, and many others most recently. And the reason why he's on the show today is he just published the cover story on Harper's Magazine, The Way of All Flesh, uh, about working as a USDA inspector in a meatpacking plant in Schuyler, Nebraska. Welcome to the program, Ted. Thanks a lot. I'm really excited to have you on because I'm such an admirer of your work. Well, thanks, Katie. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, thank you. Um, and by the way, I was really annoyed that you let Leonard Lopate scoop me on Friday. <laughs> I just do what they tell me. Yeah. I would have happily spoken to you first. <laughs> Next time. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. I want you to tell me first when things come out. Um, but anyway, I, at least it's a worthy contender. So um, first, I want to know how the hell did you get a job as an inspector with no prior experience in the meat industry? Well, it wasn't that hard. You mainly need patience. Uh, most people come to this job with experience in the meat industry. You know, they've actually mm-hmm. worked in slaughterhouses. But if you go online, you'll see that you can become a USDA Food Safety Inspection Service inspector. Also, through um, you can qualify through education, which means a four-year college degree with sufficient math and science credits. Wow. And I figured I... You know, I, when I counted it up, it seemed to me I had enough of those, but uh, four months after I applied, they wrote back to me and said, nope, you're short four credits. So <laughs> I, then, um, I then enrolled in a distance learning course, uh, a math course at the University of Illinois, and uh, fixed that problem and threw my hat back in the ring and, and waited more than another year uh, wow. And I don't exactly know why the wait is long. Some of it is vetting, uh, but I really don't know why the process takes so long. They need inspectors at lots of small-town slaughterhouses. Uh These spots are not always easy to fill, and they had, when I applied, a list of places where if you were willing to go, you'd get hired sooner. And um, Schuyler, Nebraska, where I ended up going, was one of those. Mm And uh, that's that's kind of how it happened. Mm, very interesting. And that's a very large plant, um, bigger than most of them, I think. Uh, it is. Certainly bigger it's than very... the one that I toured in Fort Collins, which was only 4,000 people uh, headed cattle a day. You did 5,100. So, But anyway, as a consumer, did you feel reassured by the way um, you were trained and what you saw in terms of food safety and animal handling protocols? Or did your eyes just literally fall out of your head and your stomach churn? <laughs> <laughs> It's a good question, and it's uh, an important thing to separate, you know, a sort of visceral reaction to the sight Mm -hmm. of slaughter and blood and organs, um, steaming organs running by on a a metal table in front of you. You kind of have to separate revulsion from a rational sense of, is this being done in a wholesome way? And... I should also say that, you know, I was only an inspector for six weeks, and I am not uh, the world authority on this. So I, I don't want to overstate my authority to, to tell the world what's wholesome. But I, so I know about what I saw and what I did. And what I saw and what I did made me think that the meat that left the kill floor where I worked um, uh, was carefully inspected both for, you know, contaminants, which, which we call excreta and ingesta, um, you know, either the stuff from the cattle's stomach or stuff from uh, the very end of the cattle's stomach. It, mm-hmm. uh, that's a huge source of contamination, yes. and this plant worked hard to keep the carcasses free of that. In addition, the inspectors in a meat factory use knives to cut into pieces of the animal that are indicators of, of infection or wholesomeness. And um, often these are lymph nodes, and there are many of them around the tongue and the head mm-hmm. of a cow. So one of the posts we were stationed to was, you know, a section of the chain where heads alternate with tongues, and you 
cut into them looking for infection, which we would often find, by the way, and uh, we would mark out those heads and they'd be taken off the line. Um, and then another post is at the viscera table, and one side is livers, and you look at the bile duct for um, liver flukes, and, and then you look for abscesses. Mm-hmm. There's also um, uh, there's a lymph node on the liver as well. And then across the table, there's hearts and lungs, and you look in them for signs of infection. And if there is, um, you know, if it's a minor thing like a liver fluke, you wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to eat liver that had a uh, Large paramecium sized <laughs> object in it, yeah. uh, which cattle get from drinking bad water, but uh, that's okay for pet food that mm-hmm. that kind of meat, and so you you mark that one way, but if you see a liver that has a abscess in it, which means an infection um, mm-hmm. that gets marked out, and uh, I am told it is not used for food of any kind so from my uh, vantage, uh, the thing was set up to do what it's supposed to do. Now, what I don't know is other questions about whether those cattle were fed anything in their lives that persists in the meat um, beyond slaughter and might enter our bodies as well, some chemical or pharmaceutical. I don't know the answer to that. And, I of do. course, you know, a lot of what happens is downstream from where I worked. So right. grinding, grinding plants, all that's another question entirely. Yes, certainly. And grinding is, is really mostly the, the uh, grinding and blade tenderized meats are the two vectors for disease because um, both of them introduce bacteria throughout the meat as opposed to, say, if you're cooking a steak or a roast, if there's bacteria on the exterior, it's cooked off and you don't right. have to worry about it. But anything that's been blade tenderized, and this is actually very controversial right now within the industry of like whether or not they're going to have to label it as blade tenderized to let people know that it's sort of potentially adulterated. Um, that's a big question right now in the industry, and, and there's obviously a lot of pushback about it. But um, what about things like animal abuse? I mean, at 5,100 animals a day, that's a very, very fast chain speed. And um, by chain speed, for those of you who don't know, who haven't geeked out on animal uh, livestock agriculture with me, um, <laughs> chain speed mm-hmm. means how fast the animals <clears throat> excuse me, are slaughtered and then go on the rail and then get cut up into the various pieces that Ted was looking at. And, um, and 5,100 a day is a lot, as you can probably imagine. Um, did you see a lot of animal abuse, for example? Were you close enough to the kill floor to be able to see that? Um, did you feel like animals were treated well? Or I think Cargill has a pretty good reputation, but, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Yeah, I agree. Cargill does have a pretty good reputation, and everybody makes mistakes. So the way it works is animals are gathered outside the plant where, as you know, trucks drop them off about 40 at a time, these cattle pots. So that's a lot of truckloads of cattle if you figure they arrive 40 at a time, and there's more than 5,000 killed in a day. So there's constant traffic outside, but there's only, um, that's not where most inspectors are. I had a supervisor who's a veterinarian, and her job was to look over all the cattle before they... uh, came up the ramp and headed onto the kill floor. She was making sure they could walk, they didn't have open sores or other signs of Mm -hmm. disease. But that's the extent of of inspection at the plant uh, before slaughter. So on the kill floor, you do not see the animal being knocked. They come in on this narrow... uh, 
it's a narrow shoot. passageway yeah. behind a wall, so most workers can't see what's going on back right. there. There's just the knocker and a guy who puts a cuff on the animal's leg so that once it's uh, heading to heaven, uh, its <laughs> rear foot will rise into the air and and it will begin its trip around the room. But and that I'm going to interrupt you for a second. That, by the way, and that, that there's a lot of videos out now that show that. Um, the, Nash- the American Meat Institute put up a video with Temple Grand and narrating, and, and then there have been YouTube videos. But people will see a lot of kicking and twitching, which can be really, really disturbing. I'm sure you thought so. I, I certainly did. And um, in fact, it's just a natural part of you know the brain circuitry decircuitizing. I guess is the best way to put it, right? Well, yeah. I mean, again, there's. Uh... The question is, are they dead or not? They have been, I think the phrase is rendered insensate, but uh, as I understand it, their hearts keep going, which helps drain their blood Mm -hmm. as, uh, as, as the slaughter proceeds. So, um, you had asked me, did I see a lot of abuse? I did not, uh, uh, unless you regard killing cattle as abuse. Um, (laughs) uh, and then the other question related to that is we did, on the last inspection post before the carcasses head to what's called the hot box where they actually cool down Mm -hmm. for three days before they're disassembled, um, we would see bruises on the flesh that the trimmers had sometimes missed. And I said to my fellow inspector, my trainer, how did... How does the meat get bruised? And he said, "You ever see the way the you know the drivers of those cattle pots drive? And they do drive really fast." And his suggestion uh, was that you know the cattle get hurt in transit. And I don't know if that's true, but they do have big bruises on their flesh a lot of times. Yes, I'm sure that's exactly why. Because um, you know, and then and then they're supposed to have like a rest period after they get unloaded from the trucks, like an eight hour rest period. That's mandated by law. I'm surprised you didn't mention that in the article. But um, supposedly that's what they're, I mean, that literally is the law of what they have to do. Huh. Yeah. Interesting, <laughs> uh, interesting <laughs> that they're not doing it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I couldn't tell you definitively they weren't doing it because this is a giant industrial yes. process. And unless you're top management of either the inspectors or Cargill, you don't get to see everything in a way that gives you as the wide as wide a view as you'd want to have. Right, right. Interesting. Um, Did you see a lot of accidents among the workers? I was curious about that because, I mean, I know we all talk a lot about animal abuse, but actually uh, meatpacking has long been one of the most uh, difficult and dangerous jobs in any industry. And I wondered how uh, worker safety stacked up in your in your opinion. Did you feel like people were well trained and that they knew what to do with their knives and they were protected from anything but repetitive injuries, which you did talk about quite a bit um, and we'll talk about in a few minutes, but... Yeah, well, that's that's truly the big question as far as I'm concerned with worker safety. Everything else, it's it looks like steps are being taken to, you know, make sure everybody's got on a hard hat. They all have plenty of um, no-cut gloves to protect themselves while they're working. The floors where they get greasy have, have detergent sprayed on them to keep people from falling, you yeah. know. In terms of that sort of obvious stuff, uh, the plant doesn't seem a risky place to work. But as you know, the main injuries that come out of meat plants are, are hard to see. 
Yeah. Well, there's the repetitive injury um, issues. And then there's also like the, the really crazy accidents, like falling into the meat grinder and stuff, which does happen. Um, and then there's also the thing, the re- thing that really blew my mind when I went to a meatpacking facility was watching those guys. And you described this when they're cutting the cow carcass in half after it's been eviscerated. And yeah. they have to cut it right down the center of the spinal cord because they have to remove the cord so that it can be discarded as industrial waste. Right. And these guys are on a moving platform with moving things in front of them with these huge freaking chainsaws and they're nailing it i mean it was just amazing to me those guys i thought were rock stars but anyway well yeah and, and that whoever, seemed like a place where you could really hurt yourself and whoever designed a lot of this machinery really was ingenious because mm-hmm. um the machinery is all about the interface uh, between industry and life right this yes. this thing that grew without a man without a without a uh, our design cattle come with their own design and to make machines uh to take them apart with such that are so finely calibrated is kind of a a a horrific miracle to watch (laughs) that's a good way of putting it ted um one thing that i i really wanted to um bring up with you was you made um you said that you saw a lot of abscesses in the livers of the animals you inspected and that one of the plant workers told you, or the woman from Ilanco, which is the veterinarian medicine side of Eli Lilly and company, was telling you that they were looking for overuse of antibiotics. Can you? I, I didn't quite understand that. What happened there? What were they talking about? Sure. So just so you know how the plant is uh, set up, inspectors are embedded, essentially. We're, we're paid yeah. by the government, but we have to be accommodated by the private company in order to do our job. So Alongside the inspectors at the viscera table, occasionally would be a woman in a lab coat with a clipboard, uh, just keeping track of how many livers we marked out because of abscesses. Uh-huh. And uh, I asked her about that one day, and she said, "Yeah, I'm from Eli Lilly. You know, we make the antibiotics that uh, cattle are fed and uh, in the feedlots." Bef- in the days and weeks before they're slaughtered. And there's a correlation between uh, the use of antibiotics and uh, the abscesses. And either she misspoke or uh, I did not completely understand her. I, um, it, I did not appreciate that the abscesses begin when the cattle's diet is changed from grass. Yes, that's my grain. understanding. And that it's and the, the bacteria acidosis. caused by ulcer or the bacteria that results from that make mm-hmm. their way through cat ulcers in the cattle's stomach into their livers. And that's right. This antibiotic uh, tylosin is used to control those abscesses. So at any rate. Um, what's interesting is is to see a pharmaceutical company representative uh, sort of part of the production process, just like we were. And I think this particular antibiotic is not one of the ones that um, people are so worried about. The kind we do not use administ- that in human medicine. Kind That's administered right. at subtherapeutic levels to promote cattle growth in the absence of any particular pathogen, right? Um, right? Not for a medical purpose. So that's the huge issue around antibiotics. Oh, no doubt. I think, I've done tons of programs yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I wanted to clarify that because I think people feel a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of misinformation about uh, the use of antibiotics and, and what is precipitating what. So I just wanted to make sure that 
that we all understood that it's the, those, those abscesses, which by the way, cost the industry huge amounts of money because mm-hmm. then those livers, as you say, are marked condemned and they cannot put them into the food chain. So they lose five, $6 per liver at least, which mm-hmm. on a fairly short margin of profit in a cattle, that's in a cow, that's, that's a pretty big, significant piece. And um, so those drugs are used to control that. And I think what they're finding is that even Tylosin, the new drug that they're starting to use for it is not having as uh, good an impact on this as they would like to see. And yeah, because I, I looked this up because Merck, I think, is the uh, pharmaceutical that makes that. And um, and they published a couple of studies on their website about it. And they were talking about whether or not, you know, they had comparative studies like animals that got it and didn't and so forth. Anyway, Ted, stay on the line. We're going to take a very short break for our um, uh, sponsor. And we'll be right back with Ted Conover, uh, the um, fabulous author and the author of um, The Way of All Flesh in Harper's Magazine this month. Thank you. This one's called Crying Blues by the California Honey Drops on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. And we're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with Katie Kiefer. That would be me. And on the phone with me today is Ted Conover, the author of the uh, this month's cover story on Harper's Magazine called The Way of All Flesh. Um, Ted, thanks again for staying with us. Um, so let's go on uh, to the whole idea of, of the meat industry, like how did they respond to this? Cause you got a lot of play in the trades, which of course I read religiously. Um, I, I wondered if you had gotten a lot of um, sort of uh, requests for information from other organizations, feedstuffs, drovers, cattle network. I know you were interviewed on meetingplace.com. Tell me a little bit about that. So uh, I guess maybe I was naive. I didn't realize that writing about an experience of a meatpacking plant would be like, it's the equivalent of wading into the Israel-Palestinian conflict in terms of the polarized attitudes oh, you run man, into you on both right. sides. And so I didn't write the article in any sort of defensive way, and I uh, didn't appreciate, for example, that simply quoting Eric Schlosser might be taken as an act of hostility oh, by totally, uh, the meat industry, or that not quoting Temple Grandin would... Um, also seem like an act of hostility against the media. Absolutely. Uh, so there are, there are a lot of sensitivities out there, and certainly um, 
they were touched on in that story about me in meetingplace.com. Yeah, it was it was uh, kind of remarkable. Actually, the Q&A, I just laughed out loud all the way through because, I mean, uh, Rita Jane Gabbert, who is the editor-in-chief at Meeting Place, and by the way, it's I mean, it's a great publication. I actually find it very interesting and informative. I learn so much from them every single day about mm-hmm. our about our food industry and um, and they cover all of the you know all of the livestock uh, it's you know it's poultry pork and beef although they tend towards the beef side more than anything else but um, you know you had a um, you had a couple of really testy exchanges with her uh, Eric Schlosser being one and then and then like, you you said that they had used cattle prods and and she comes back and says oh no they didn't no 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 well you didn't know the what kind of cattle prod. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. What was she looking for, do you think? I mean, she was looking for some kind of justification. Then she went on and said, well, why didn't you use industry experts? And you pointed out, excuse me, if I called industry experts, of course they're going to say you're doing a great job. Right. So it it was interesting. The business about the cattle prods, I had no idea would be at all controversial. I was outside one day with another inspector on our sort of kitchen tour of the plant. We watched where cattle ascend the curving ramp designed by Temple Grandin right before they go inside the kill floor and yeah. and, and get killed. And uh, I described how bad it smelled and the fact that a worker told me it smells bad because the cattle are scared, they don't want to die, uh, they pee. And they, I could, the thing I could see for myself was they didn't want to go up that ramp and cattle prods electric cattle prods were used to uh, goad them goad them along. And, right. and apparently when the Harper's fact checker asked Cargill, they said, no, uh, cattle prods are forbidden. Uh, at, their use is forbidden at that plant. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that may, be the, that may be so, but they're being used. And it was as though because <laughs> they had forbidden it, they somehow believed it, at least at headquarters, they believed it didn't happen. So I kind of thought that, um, yes, the editor of Meeting Place was of a man, she was sort of shared that mindset with management that this sure. is our policy, so you must have made it up. Um, but it's kind no, of insulting. I, I, I didn't even know it would be controversial, and I just so wrote what I saw, and then they argued, and she actually asked me, you didn't, she said, you didn't even bother to differentiate between... Um, what was it, a vibrating cattle prod and a sparking cattle prod. I didn't even know there were two kinds, and it wasn't my concern to distinguish between what kind was being used. It was... They're very sensitive on this point, and uh, well, because a lot of the HSUS, you know, Humane Society of the United States, and and Mercy for Animals, they delight in showing uh, undercover videos of animals being goaded horribly with cattle prods. Indeed, mm-hmm. uh, Tim Patcherat, who's been a guest on this show for every twelve seconds, um, he describes seeing them stick a, uh, an electric prod up a cow's asshole. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, to get them to move, and with a chain speed of fifty one hundred a day, you got to get those cattle through, man. So there's no, right. there's no loitering. I mean, I often think that animal abuse really starts there. That when you see uh, undercover videos of animals being abused, it's usually because the chain speed is unsustainable for workers and that the only way they can make this happen is by abusing the animals to make them move faster. And it's a really mm-hmm. unfortunate byproduct of seeking that bottom line. Um, I wondered if you, if any of you and your fellow workers had discussed the agricultural gag laws, otherwise known as farm protection bills, um, in the workroom or anything. Were they aware of that? Because that's such a big deal right now. 
I don't think they they may have been aware, but it never came up in conversation. Uh, the first law passed in Iowa while I was waiting to get hired by the USDA, and mm-hmm. I was worried about that because some versions of these laws would forbid the kind of thing I was doing. No doubt you know, about I, it, my friend. I wasn't uh, I wasn't there to shoot video or secret video or photographs, which is what they're mainly after. Because as you know, that's the stuff of the activist videos that are so effective, but like uh, Arkansas's version of the bill would even outlaw, quote, an unofficial investigation. Yes. Um, and, it, and I think anybody who's in there and thinking of writing something is, could be guilty of doing an unofficial investigation. And so, sure, I've been worried about those. I, I didn't notice that the inspectors were worried about it. Uh, they're, not, uh, they're not too caught up in all of that and one thing that did make me happy was was watching uh, the latest um, mercy for animals video of dairy cattle abuse with them and i was wondering you know which side are they on they've all right. grown up in cattle towns and a lot grew up on farms how are they how are they going to feel about this video and and they were aghast they were mm-hmm. like Ah, oh, they were making noise you know like oh my god i can't believe they did that and they weren't defending the abusive people at all. So it's not, you know, it's not like you go to rural America and then it's and it's a free for all on animals. Um, it, it's, it's just some, it's it's pockets of the industrial process where owners just don't bother to monitor what's happening to these animals, and um, you know, and then they can blame it on a handful of quote unquote bad employees. I, yes. but it's it's certainly not a part of you know, middle American attitudes toward wild, uh, toward f- farm animals. I don't, I don't believe that. I, I don't either. And I, I, I kind of think that um, I've actually, uh, I, I took, I took a, an interview with somebody from the Humane Society. They were very upset because I, I wrote a blog on the Huffington Post about sort of the polarization of the, <clears throat> the industry versus the activists. And as you know, I'm going to be doing, a, I'll be giving a talk at the Animal Agriculture Alliance this coming week. And um, that is the topic of my conversation. And, um, you know, they, the Humane Society came right in and was like, they were on me literally moments after that piece went up on the Huffington Post. They wanted to have an interview, et cetera, et cetera. And I, you know, I really think it's unfortunate that those undercover videos um, do tend to sensationalize what, um, I suspect is partly just standard operating procedures and partly just bad acting things. But as Temple Grandin or bad acting, you know, employees, but as Temple Grandin always says, it's like, it's a management issue. It's, you know, 50% of the people who handle stock are okay. And the rest really should never be allowed near animals. (laughs) And and that's an animal, that's a management issue. And it's management that needs to address that. And again, going back to that quick chain speed, I think that's tied to a lot of these um, abusive practices because, you know, people are panicked that they're not going to get their quota done. And I think that's a very powerful motivator for most people. Um, Yeah, but it's it's really a shame the meat industry uh, seeks to kill the messenger, uh, you know, by, by penalizing the, the activist groups or anybody who wants to shine a light on what they're doing. I know. I mean, these agricultural gag laws, which is how I met Emily Meredith from the agriculture, the animal agricultural Alliance, who I thought was just a terrific guest and really a very uh, courageous spokesperson for her industry in a lot of ways. Um, Just the fact that she brought me into this summit, you know, as I, I'm really, you know, I'm coming from the heart of darkness as far as they're concerned. (laughs) 
Uh-huh. You know, I'm their worst nightmare, you know, because I'm like this earthy, crunchy babe who's like, you know, telling them what they're doing wrong now. You know? I don't but, actually but you're feel very that way. to the industry. You're not coming at it from, you don't have a starting place of activism, I don't No, think. I don't. I would like to see them improve their practices, and I would like to see them stop shooting themselves in the foot right, uh, in right, terms right. of public relations. It's like, it doesn't take that much to hook up, for instance. Um, one thing we didn't get to talk about, but I'd love to take a couple minutes here, is that third-party uh, audited video stream. And you mentioned that in your article that in at the Cargill plant that you were in, they had third-party, or they had video stream constantly, that was going back to management. Now, whether it's audited by a third party or not, I don't know. Did you Were you able to find that out? No, and tell me what you mean by that. Well, they had. you said that they had video cameras, like, all over right. the kill floor and in the fabrication yes. areas. And um, and that's something that, for instance, Temple Grandin has, has advocated very strenuously for, and which the meat industry has given a lot of pushback to. They do not want to have those uh, video cameras mounted. And yet they would, if they created a transparent atmosphere where there was a third party, uh, you know, like if it was even a housewife in Nebraska, you know, watching these videos and flagging places where she thought there was a problem, you know, that mm-hmm. would do a lot to alleviate consumer concern about things like animal abuse and see. about uh, food safety. And no, I, they I don't didn't, want to I do didn't it. quite understand what you meant by third party, because I believe the systems were installed by them for mm-hmm. them. And what's what's the question is whether other people should be able to see them, right? And I, Yes, right. And I think they should. Right. And so does uh-huh. Temple. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad she does. Oh, yeah. No, she's a very progressive. Uh, you know, she's, she's right inside the industry, but she's very progressive. She was very, very kind to me. Um, she took me around on that Fort Collins plant. She hung out with me afterwards and answered tons of questions and... She's really a terrific person. I've seen her a lot of times since then. Um, so I guess we have to wrap this up, Ted. This has been fantastic. Thank you so, so much for joining me today and taking time out of your Sunday. I want to give you a chance here to promote whatever you want. You know, the magazine article, the website. You have a really good blog. Um, you know, New Jack. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all good. I'm not here to hawk anything. People you should. People subscribe to Harper's Magazine because they, they spend money on important projects like this and they don't make very much to to read my article online you have to buy a $20 subscription which is unfortunate um or but you can just pick it up at the just news for 6 i think yeah, yeah i did i did that okay <laughs> but thanks so much for uh, And are you going to be speaking elsewhere do you, do you, are you planning on giving any more um talks about this or this is it i think it's interesting I'm, that you got picked up so heavily for this what do you think happened there cuz it's not a sensationalist article at all i thought no, I didn't see anybody fall into the hamburger grinder much. Uh, exactly. Much, much though I was looking for it, and um, and yeah, Upton Sinclair set a bar that's going to be very hard to um, surpass with the jungle. I mean, there isn't that so much that's written that immediately results in legislation, and I, yeah, uh, you know, we're in a different historical moment now, and I'm just trying to. Uh, add to this conversation. I think people are interested in the fact that, uh, you know, I really tried to be even-handed and to show show the texture of what it's like to work in a place like Mm -hmm. this in an an accessible way. And and I think the fact that I continue to look for places to uh, insert myself, um, uh, you know, keeps keep some of those radio shows interested and I'm I'm happy for that and because I, I, I try to look for stories that make some kind of difference and uh, 
I'm glad when people pick up on it. Yeah, well, it was terrific. And thank you so, so much for joining us today. We'll be sending you a link to the show. And uh, you can put it up on your website if you want to. Um, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> that would be great. And I hope to meet you sometime. I'm such a fan. Um, you got to come have that pizza. Yeah, there. man. I'm sorry you missed that. But <laughs> listen, the too. trains were horrible today. So you're lucky you didn't come down. Um, anyway, so I will say goodbye to you. And next week, my friends, uh, you will be hearing once again from the wonderful Winota Howder, the executive director of Food and Water watch we're going to talk about her book foodopoly as kind of a follow-up conversation to the one we had a few weeks ago so if you missed her the first time around maybe take a listen to that come back and listen to us again next week live uh, with winona howder this has been another episode of what doesn't kill you food industry insights thanks so much to my guest ted conover and to my sponsor tabard in see you next week folks Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.